you know, everything you say ends up somewhere. Nothing gets on the cutting room floor. That's <laughs> what an awful thing to say to someone <laughs> right before you start. It's something I can say to you. Yeah. I don't really say this uh, just, to the other guests. Okay? Yeah. Just so you know, this is all going on your permanent record. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for being late. Appreciate Shut it. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm trying to solve deals. Okay. Solve deals. You're making deals like the president. You're making deals. I'm Essen Zafar, and welcome to another episode of Unfair Nation, the podcast that discusses our nation's rising inequity and social, political, and economic inequality, what it means for you, and what you can do about it. Every other week, we interview one person to get their perspective on structural inequality, and today I'm joined once again by Gabriel Kreshock for a special mailbag episode where we answer questions sent in by you, our listeners. All right. Hey, thanks for joining us for Unfair Nation's first Q&A episode where we will answer questions that you've sent. Uh, if you're wondering, there's lots of ways you can send us questions. Uh, you can uh, tag us in your question using the hashtag Unfair Nation on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. You can also sign up for our newsletter at unfairnation.com and submit comments directly on the newsletter webpage or by replying to any of the emails that you get as, uh, as part of the newsletter. I'm also joined today by a guest co-host for the first time. There's lots of firsts in this episode. He's a good-looking guy, if you've seen him uh, on my Twitter page. And you've also heard him um, in an episode uh, about a month and a half ago on 3D printing. His name's Gabriel Kreshock, not Gabe. And uh, he's, uh, he's just kind of a renaissance man. Thanks for being here, Gabe. Well, thanks for having me, Essen. And I do appreciate that you said that I'm a handsome guy. Um, and you might say I'm, it's handsome for, for radio, for podcasting, I think is the <laughs> exact right venue um, to make that claim. No, I think people can be the judge of that themselves. You're, you're a good looking guy. <laughs> What's your Twitter handle, Gabriel? So I am just at Gabriel Kreshock. And you can basically just try and put that into any search engine and get reasonably close. And I, I've I found that it, it'll it'll mostly get you there. How do they spend your how how do they spend, spell your last name Kreshock? It's K R I E S H O K. Okay, and uh, you're working on a couple of other projects. You have a book, I think, coming out. I do, I do. Um, uh, so I I live here in beautiful Washington D.C. and uh, during this crazy time that we're all living in uh i've i've ventured on a couple of day job things and a couple of side project evening job things one of those is a book around technology for development so uh that's about to come out soon and so you can look for that it's just called the tech for good field guide tech what's tech for good can you can you tell me what tech for uh, good is you and I all thought this was going to be a, a session where we kind of interview you the questions I get yeah. to come up with questions and then you get to answer them. I mean, this is what I do is I ask questions. <laughs> so I figured I might as well ask one. What is tech for good? I hear it. I hear bandied about a lot. 
So it's it's interesting. So, you know, basically, at very fundamentally, tech for good is really just thinking about how to use technology for an explicitly good thing. So it's really, you know, that might sound kind of vague. And the reason is that it is. Um, but the idea is that you're thinking about technology, not for its sort of functional uses, like, hey, can my phone do this? Can my computer do that? But you're sort of saying, well, what is the outcome of this thing? Can we actually use a technology, whether it's a phone or a computer or radio, a fax machine, a pencil, to actually, you know, improve somebody's livelihood, to actually improve, you know, a country's GDP, to, um, you know, improve the welfare of, of a community or, or, or a family or an individual. So it, it, it's sort of putting that as, as the end and then working backwards from there. What if it's uh, improving the uh, welfare of a corporation? Isn't that a good thing? Well, you know that um, um, companies are people too. So you have to think about that. I mean, I think it's all within context, right? And yeah. so, um, yeah, I think, you know, most tech for good sort of lenses, and that's all it really is. It's just a lens of sort yeah. of saying like, how are we thinking about this project or this challenge that we're looking at? And so, yeah, you could certainly apply it to corporations. There's a lot of corporations out there that are, you know, really thinking hard about how they can leverage their, you know, their resources uh, for doing things that are explicitly good in that way. But, um, you know, I think most often it's like, what is what is the the end goal? What are we really looking at at the end of the day? Well, this is not the Tech for Good episode, unfortunately, <laughs> but I do appreciate that explanation. It's just something I was curious about. So we have a few questions, which I think you have, which you are going to pose to me. So these are good. So, so I, so first off, I want to thank you for bringing me onto this podcast for this exciting experiment of having, I, you referred to me as a co-host. So I'm going to take that for this entire episode as having equal value to you absolutely, uh, and, and make sure that I can ask just as many questions um, as, as you. Uh, and we, we do have some really good questions. And I think actually, um, uh, they dive very deeply, very quickly into some really challenging questions uh, around sort of what's going on in the current state of affairs and um, corporations and reform and things like that. And so I do want to get to these. But I think actually, um, this is both for myself, but maybe for some of your listeners who are just coming into this fresh, I'm kind of curious about um, sort of just the, the idea of unfair nation and how you're thinking. You asked me for a definition of tech for good. So now I'm going to ask <laughs> you for the definition of you know, of unfair. What, what does that mean? Why did, why did you land on that as a, as the term? Yeah. So thanks uh, for that question. So a couple of reasons, right? So one of the reasons was I wanted to have a title that was a little provocative, right? So when I say unfair, it challenges your notions and conceptions of what is fair. This country is premised on this belief that it is a fair country, right? That's the idea that we have. You come here from another place like I did as an immigrant and you work hard, you, f you follow the rules, you play by the rules, and you will do fine. You will do okay. You put in X and you get, you know, X back. Um, but it is my belief and that of many others who work in these areas that we are, I mean, every place is inherently unfair. But it is my belief that the United States is particularly, a uh, particularly unequal uh, country. Uh, in other words, your effort, there is no discernible correlation between effort um, and what you end up earning. And, you know, there's always, you know, you put, you, maybe you put in 50 and you get 45 out and that's fine. There's some inherent inequality 
always in any system. Um, but it's completely out of whack in the United States. And every year it gets worse. And what we're seeing in this country over the last 20 years, um, whether it's the Occupy Wall Street movement or even the Tea Party movement, and now what with the Black Lives Matter movement for police reform, and there's many other examples, these are all uh, manifestations of a desire uh, for some kind of inherent equality. And the best way to encapsulate that, rather than using some of these big words that I've been throwing around, the last two minutes, is to just hit on the idea of fairness. Everybody understands fairness. A two-year-old, a four-year-old can understand fairness. What is fair and unfair? We're kind of born with that idea. Um, And so unfair nation, besides the fact that it kind of flows nicely and the domain name was available, also ties in this idea of like this idea of American exceptionalism, the American dream, which is the promise that we're given uh, with the reality of of increasing unfairness in these systems, right? Like, for example, the best way to encapsulate this with a real-life situation is like, I work at Starbucks, okay? I work at Starbucks, and I make an average minimum wage, which is about $9. You know, that comes out to something like a little bit less than $2,000 before taxes, maybe 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 2400 before taxes a year, you know? That's very close to the poverty line in many jurisdictions. That's insane. I'm working yeah. a full-time job 40 hours a week. How is that fair, right? Like, I should be able to work a full-time job and be able to afford the basic necessities of life, like rent and a cell phone. So that's kind of where the idea comes from. Well, I like it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're the only guy who's come on here twice, so uh, I'm assuming you do. <laughs> Um, I, I have a question though, as you brought this up. So is, is uh, like, do you think of unfairness or fairness in, as the same way in which you think about inequality or, uh, or unjustness or things like that? Are they, are they sort of synonyms or should I be thinking about them differently? And I'm got to remember, I'm not in this space. So you gotta, you gotta translate this for. Yeah, these are really good questions. So maybe you should become a podcast or well, you do have a podcast. It's just a silent podcast, but maybe you should become a podcast <laughs> oh, yeah. host. Uh, we, okay. we can we can promo the silent podcast later i mean we can't promo it because it's a silent podcast you can't we've already done it yeah we can't spaces I mean, between quite, yeah. all of our other ones there we go uh so that's a good so that's a really good question um so you know inequality the reason why it's difficult it's an important subject inequality but the reason why it's difficult to talk about it is because it is open to critique because inequality is a state of nature right like people will say mm-hmm. so fine so okay so there's inequality unfairness, fairness and unfairness, even though it's not an academic discipline, it's easier to talk about because a one, one reason is because people understand it at an inherent level. Like we're born with this idea of fairness. Second, um, in the real world, unfairness plays out right in a way that inequality doesn't. So for instance, I play a game, I lose as long as the game was fair. I understand that I lost mm. and I can deal mm-hmm. with it, right? Like, so people will accept a relative level of unfairness, you know, a, a relative, uh, th- people will accept a loss in a system as long as the system is fair. And so ideas of fairness, not only are they understood by us from an inherent perspective, but they also allow us to look at issues from a s- systems-wide perspective, right? So mm. we people... 
people don't look at like I lost or I won the game. When you talk about fairness or unfairness, you look at the system. How, what were the rules of the game? How is the right. game structured? Right. I mean, that's what I want the podcast to be, right? The individual stories and narratives that people talk about. What do they say about the system? Right. So I can, if you are caught up in unjust incarceration, like I can help you as a lawyer, you know, I can help you. I can get you freed. I was a public defender. I can like do all this stuff. But if the system remains the way it is, it's kind of a pointless exercise, right? So what's the way that we look at the system rather than the effects that rise out of the system? That makes sense. That makes sense. I think the the one, I guess, I guess my, uh, so we can stop if this goes down a rabbit hole, but I would, I would say, <laughs> I guess it makes sense when you talk about it. And I think the board game analogy or, or the game analogy is a really good one. Uh, uh, but, but how do you know when it's the, when the system itself is, uh, is unfair versus, um, you know, it's not the system that's rigged, but you just got an outcome um, that, that is, you know, less than ideal for yourself. So you might, you know, how do you know that you lost the Monopoly game because you're just bad at Monopoly versus, well, uh, it, you know, you went fourth when you started Monopoly and that, you know, there's an uh, implicit bias against going for, I don't actually remember if this is true or not, but um, so something like that. Like, how do you, how do you know to draw that line between those two things you were talking about? Yeah. You see trends. That's where the nation part comes in. Right. So you start seeing trends across time and people. So if I just lose the monopoly game once, it could just be me. But if mm -hmm. everybody that is like me or plays like me keeps losing, then it could be a broader issue. It could either be right. an issue, you know, with people with my specific play style, in which case maybe it's not unfair. It's just something I have to change about my play style. Or it could be an issue that I have no control over, that the game is dis is either explicitly or unexplicitly uh, exploiting, right? Like, right. And so once you start seeing these patterns and trends, then you can kind of get to this idea of whether the system itself is unfair. Um, I don't like to use the word rigged. A lot of people use the word rigged hmm. because rigged implies that there's some kind of maliciousness in the hmm. system. There's maliciousness in people, certainly, that may have set up the system. So like redlining, you know, the people that set up redlining, which is prevented African-Americans from obtaining mortgages for houses in certain neighborhoods and kept kind of neighborhoods divided by race. Like the people who put that through were, were malicious, uh, certainly, right. and racist. But uh, the system itself was not. And so a lot of people attack the system as racist. I think you can certainly attack the people at racist and, and look at the system from an objective fairness or unfairness lens, and that gives you a lot more credibility when, when looking to make change. One of the things, so you mentioned redlining. I was, I was trying to think of some other examples of, of rigged systems, and I think I'm going to, um, but I'm, I'm going to steal this example from, I think it's Kara Swisher brought it up, where uh, it turns out that there are more um, uh, Fortune 500 CEOs named John than there are women uh, yeah, CEOs. crazy. So, you know, and you're like, well, yeah, okay, <laughs> there's clearly something systemically wrong with this. But who do you blame? I mean, these are all different companies and they're all sort of coming to different things. So clearly the trend is there and clearly it's systemic. But, you know, 
where do you sort of put that line? Which brings me to one of the questions actually that was asked sort of <laughs> on this topic. Um, and so, so somebody, so I noticed you, uh, uh, you, you scrubbed all of the identifying information from these question askers. I did, so yeah. We, we may add that later for another episode. <laughs> we yeah. can't cite them. So some very um, intelligent and well-meaning person asked the question, how do corporate monopolies contribute to inequality? And I might actually zoom that out a little bit and sort of just sort of, you know, you asked about corporations earlier. So how do corporations contribute to inequality? And then honing in on the, the monopolies. So corporations don't, I mean, so corporations don't necessarily contribute to inequality, although they probably do in the long run because um, they just have a profit incentive, right? And a profit incentive, which is growth oriented and consumer based, like grow, 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 uh, isn't really designed to address equality. The irony is that the more uh, corporations encourage inequality, the, gr- the less they're, in the long run, the more problematic that is for them. So if I'm a company um, and I encourage people, you know, I, you know, I keep it, you know, let's say I give my CEOs $80 million and there were some CEOs that have gotten that much. Ray Rani of Occidental Petroleum, for instance, is one example. Um, And other people at the top of the ladder keep getting more, keep getting more. And I don't raise wages for my employees, which has been the trend in the, in the U S wages really haven't gone up uh, considerably. Eventually who's going to buy my products? If I'm making pillowcases, mm-hmm. it's not going to be the billionaire. How many pillowcases are going to buy? 30, 40? Uh, you know, I need the, you know, I need the 10 million people to buy pillowcases to make money. I don't need the 300 richest people to buy pillowcases. So inequality is actually terrible for larger companies. Um, and it's one of the reasons why you see this bifurcation in companies right now. So you see... If you notice, you'll see two kinds of companies. You'll see companies that are either catered to the extreme, extremely wealthy uh, population. So you have Tesla and Peloton. You know, Peloton makes these like insanely expensive mm-hmm. bikes. Tesla makes ex- insanely expensive cars that almost nobody can afford. Um, and then you have companies on the other end of the spectrum uh, that are also talked about a lot that cater to people that are much lower income, like dollar stores. Dollar stores have been doing great. If you bought a dollar store stock of like Dollar General 10 years Mm -hmm. ago, you'd be like rolling in it. Um, You know, whereas companies in the middle of the spectrum, like JCPenney's 24-hour fitness, both of which have gone bankrupt in the last month, um, that cater to the middle middle class or middle-income America, I have problems with the idea of middle class too, but um, they're going bankrupt. They're not doing well, Macy's, retailers, and things like that. I mean, in terms of, and then there's there's this inequality that's rising in the United States for individuals, but monopolies specifically, to go to the question, are is just another manifestation of inequality, right? It's an aggregation of mm-hmm. few, right? Uh, 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 instead of monopoly is probably a better term to use is oligopoly. Right, which is a monopoly is one company, mono, one company running everything, like a public utility. Sometimes have monopolies depending on the state. Oligopolies, you know, like three or four companies um, running everything. And so I call this the rule of three. And you can see this everywhere. Uh, you can see about three companies in almost every industry, two or four, but usually three, that run and control everything. And by doing so, they end up Maybe they don't do it on purpose, but they end up setting prices together. 
they, you know, so if I, so let's take the example of um, cell phone carriers, right? So there's three big cell phone carriers now. Mm-hmm. It used to be a lot 15 years ago, uh, but now there's three. We have T-Mobile, which is merged with Sprint. We have Verizon. We got AT&T. And together, you know, if AT&T decides to raise their price to $50, let's say for a plan, T-Mobile and, and um, Verizon can do so as well because, you know, there's no competitive advantage for them to keep their price lower. Um, you see the same in airlines, right? United, American, Delta. They control about 80% of the market. You see this in, in uh, sodas, Pepsi, Coke, and Dr. Pepper. Um, I can go on. This is like everywhere. <laughs> It's no, I, I, this is good. And so what I, they I so what they do is they set prices. They set prices at the rate that they want to set them. They charge what they want. There's no competitive pressure on them to do so. Um, and you know, people pay insanely high prices, like airline prices, because <laughs> they have no other option. It lowers consumer choice. So, so I guess the maybe the question I would put back to you is: Is there something inherently you know unfair, or you know the question was was about inequality? But I'll sort of just raise it up. I mean, is, is there something about um, you know the maybe the, the the pandemic itself that's pushing these corporations to behave in a more unfair way, or that makes them the sort of existence or their profit motives or the sort of shareholder structure more unfair, or is it, um, you know, is, are, are we looking at something that's wholly different than that? So, so I see COVID um, as an accelerant, right? So companies that prior to COVID were not doing well, like JC Penney um, are doing much worse. Um, 24 hour fitness was not doing well. It's doing much worse. These are companies that cater to the middle class, which is anybody, a family of four making, you know, 30 something thousand to 130,000 mm-hmm. companies that were doing great before the pandemic that cater to extremely wealthy or lower income folks are continuing to do great, right? Like Peloton has seen an insane amount of business uh, because people that are wealthy will continue to, to, you know, do well. Um, COVID, I think, highlights this need for, I mean, you're seeing governments respond in this way, right? Like, all of a sudden, companies and governments are doing things that people like me have been talking about for years, right? People are getting healthcare benefits to take time off if they're uh, uh, lower wage or even middle wage workers. Uh, they're getting unemployment compensation that's real unemployment compensation, something that will actually help them, not like, you know, $300 a week or something something that's actually you know, closer to their wages. Uh, these are, when you have a system, when you have systemic inequality, the system is not incentivized. Okay, a corporate system, going back to corporate monopolies, a corporate mm-hmm. system is not in the business of reducing inequality. That's not their job. Their job is to generate the greatest amount of shareholder profit. So you have to have somebody else come in, whether it's another person and most usually a government come in and say, listen, uh, run amok. This system is going to just keep promoting inequality and actually run itself out of business. So we need to step in and, you know, you need brakes. So if, if, right. if corporations are the, are the accelerator in a car, the, you know, you need some other entity or a group of entities and organizations to kind of be the brakes. 
I'm thinking about, you know, what I'm, I'm thinking of, I'm just, I, th I think, cause it's, um, um, just, I'm still on the, 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 the pandemic side of things. And I just think there's so many, you know, one, one thing that I feel like it's lost in the conversation a lot is, um, and I, uh, it, it's just that the, the, you know, the pandemic itself is unfair, right? It's, it's yeah. hitting people in so many different ways and it's hitting different groups of people. And, um, you know, there are certain, you know, aspects of the system that allow, you know, Peloton's doing great because the people that can buy a Peloton bike and service, um, you know, we're in a relatively safer spot than a lot of other folks. Uh, and so, uh, you know, there's like sort of unfortunate things like that where, um, you know, those kinds of services, let's, you know, just even, you know, I'm noticing this with my workplace, which has a mixture of people um, in all sorts of um, ages and sort of, uh, you know, there's a lot of folks that work remotely in different, different places and a lot of sort of, and a lot of different um, uh, uh, spots in their sort of career trajectories mm -hmm. and, and their, their lives and different ages and things like that. And so, you know, you'll have a group of, you know, you'll have someone on these conference calls who's like, um, you know, in their 20s or even, um, you know, I was talking to uh, an, someone who's an intern, a summer intern the other day who's, you know, this has got to be a Tesla. crazy experience. <laughs> 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 this is a crazy experience for them. And, you know, they kept get, getting interrupted during our sort of coffee chat um, because they said they live in a house with six other people. It's their it's their family. Yeah. And, you know, there's not any privacy with them. And contrast that with somebody who's, you know, taking the phone call from their like beautiful deck. And I don't know yeah. why they have the camera positioned so that you can see, so you know, point. all the things that you're missing, you know, in my like one bedroom apartment, which is yeah. still better than seeing somebody in their uh, apartment studio with their husband who's yeah. also on a conference call, call with their company. Yeah. <laughs> So it's, it's, it's interesting how that works. And I think that there's, you know, we're talking about sort of the emergency pieces of the pandemic and COVID, but uh, you know, this is affecting people in so many, I mean, we're not even getting into the healthcare aspects That's of right. COVID and yeah. sort of who's being, um, you know, more susceptible, who's sort of immunosuppressed for various reasons. Um, yeah. It's just such an interesting thing that I had said, so, it's, it's really hard to know who to be mad at. <laughs> Yeah, it's a system, right? I mean, it's just, that's the thing. It's it's hard. It's an unfair system. And COVID, besides being an accelerant, is like pulling back the curtain. Like all of a sudden people are seeing, oh man, there's so many people in this country that live without health care. That's nuts. Mm -hmm. Oh, there's so many people that live, even people you would think are extremely wealthy. Like, you know, there's new stories about families in Palo Alto, which share a you know, three bedroom or four bedroom house with another family of four, right? So there's eight people living in a four bedroom house and people say, oh my God, give me a break. Like Palo Alto, and these guys make $300,000 as a family per family. But like the, the mortgage and the cost of living in Palo Alto is right. so insanely high that the yeah. only way they can live is to share what would be a single family home mm -hmm. in any other part of the country, right? So- yeah. Um, it, it, you know, this is the thing with unfairness and inequality. It just, just doesn't apply to like people that are lower income or whatever. I mean, it hits a lot of, of people in different parts of their, uh, in different parts of the economy. Mm -hmm. So you're saying that unfairness is also unfair. <laughs> yeah. Unfairness is definitely unfair. 
Okay, so let's move on to. I'm I'm gonna throw some other zingers at you here. Yeah, zing. So zing we're talking about COVID. Now we're gonna talk about protesting. So this question asker asks. One easy topic to another. Yeah. <laughs> Just a smooth transition. Yeah. How come everyone is protesting now? Hasn't there been discrimination <laughs> against Black Americans for decades? Yes. <laughs> Respond. Yeah. Yes, there has been. Absolutely, there has been. Uh, and there continues to be, even during the protests, which is insane. I mean, like, first of all, it's pretty cool that the protests are happening, right? Like, Agreed. protests, um, despite, like, the health challenges and things like that that people have pointed out, it is pretty awesome that these protests are happening. I think, like, so I don't know the answer to this, right? So maybe, Gabriel, you could add, like, your thoughts to it, too, because I don't think anybody knows the answer as to why they're happening now. I mean, people know why they're happening I don't know if people know why they're happening now. I have some guesses. Like, I think one of the reasons is people have time, right, on their mm -hmm. hands. So they're able to spend more time on social media and see some of these videos that have been going up, whereas normally they'd be at work. Mm -hmm. Because so many people are either unemployed or working from home or not going to school, you know, not commuting. So some, some people have more time. I think another reason is, like, some people... Um, you know, are frustrated for like other reasons that tie into the discrimination. So maybe they're unemployed because of COVID or whatever. And I think some of it is just, it's like, it's, it's been going on for a long, long time. Like how many yeah. videos do you need to see? Like I, uh, usually I say like, it's not, um, it's not that the police got better. It's that technology got better. Like that's mm -hmm. why you're seeing all these videos crop up. Um, and there's been protests before, like, this is not the first time people have protest, right. protested against police brutality. It's just that now, which is kind of a beautiful thing to see, is this not just civil rights activists or black Americans? It's like everybody, right? It's like black, white, brown, whatever, men, women, wealthy people, poor people, they're all like going out and protesting, um, I also think like from a psychosocial perspective, we needed this. So I think mm -hmm. we were isolated, we were sitting at home, and this was like a galvanizing moment that lots of people in the U.S. could kind of get behind. And they were like, I need this sense of community, right? Like, I want to go out. Like, maybe I'm, they're yeah. not like an avid social justice warrior, to use the phrase that sometimes is used derogatorily. But they were just like, I'm sitting at home, I'm seeing these protests happen down the street, I need that sense of community. Maybe they didn't vocalize it this way, but... Mm -hmm. I think that's another reason why people kind of are joining the, the fight as well. Yeah, I, I I don't think you could say that this wouldn't have happened without the pandemic. I, I think maybe it's another accelerant, but I don't I don't think it wouldn't have happened. I mean, I think that to go to your point, right? Like so with all these protests, there is a there is a tipping point. Like George Floyd's death in particular was, you know, some of the other you know reprehensible acts that have been engaged in uh, against black uh, against mm -hmm. black Americans in this country they you know they had the I guess the word for lack of a better word like the color of authority or the color of law right he it looked like he pulled out a taser it looked like he did this he was you know talking back well, whatever some like um, excuse for mm -hmm. unacceptable behavior. But in this case, it was a long period of time 
where yeah. people were able to witness for eight and a half minutes the gruesome brutality of the system, right? And the people that are part of that system. It was like, it was hard to just be like, this is completely wrong. Um, totally. With the Arab Spring, which is another example, right? When, um, mm-hmm. I forget the guy's name, I think it was like uh, Wazizi, maybe I'm getting that wrong. But he, in Tunisia, he lit himself on fire, right? As a protest, he was a, he used to sell vegetables in mm, Tunisia. Yeah. yeah, and he lit himself on fire. And that galvanized, people were like, oh my God, like if this is, if he's able to do this, like why can't I protest? Mm-hmm. Um, and you have these like tipping points in a lot of these movements. Same thing happened in Hong Kong, right? Uh, President Trump's election galvanized the women's rights movement to like do this these massive marches. So there's always like a moment that, uh, you know, it's kind of a buildup and then there's a moment. And to go to the question you think we could ask, you said we could ask about protests. So people ask me like, why should I protest, right? Um, and I talked about this in the last podcast, like you don't have to protest, like there's other ways to support the cause, but um, why people, you know, one of the reasons why protests are important is because protests make it difficult to ignore the issue. Mm-hmm. So if millions or hundreds of thousands of people are marching and you want to bring that issue up at your workplace, you're like, hey, I want to talk about, you know, discrimination against um, uh, black employees or women or the LGBTQ or whatever. And there's protests happening down the street. It's very difficult for people to ignore that, especially in our kind of media driven Mm -hmm. culture now. That's the value of protests. Like protests make it difficult for the issue to be ignored. Whereas people say like, oh, why didn't this all change, right? That's what the questioner is saying. Like, why haven't there, there's been discrimination? Yeah, but, but there weren't protests, right? There was just like tiny little protests or tiny, tiny not being, not unimportant, but important, but nonetheless yeah. Yeah. tiny yeah. in scope actions happening. And so people will, would just, were just like, you know, you could like, shove it under the rug or there's been all kinds like uh oscars so white that was another one and we've seen Mm -hmm. a buildup of these issues both from the economic perspective you know like i don't have i'm not making enough money perspective and then also the racial and these things intersect by the way so uh, i'm glad you brought up the oscar so white and i think um the the uh, you, you know sort of that um I don't know if we can call that a movement. Was that maybe that wasn't a movement? Maybe it was just a recognition. But I think that yeah. was, and I think that that the predated the Me Too movement. Um, and then, um, so now we have these protests. So this gets me to another question that was asked. You know, um, so the question is: is uh, what are some of the barriers to police reform? Um, but I think maybe I'll, I'll zoom out a little bit too, and then you can, yeah. you can zoom back in. But I think the zoom out is, you know, we've had some of these, these, you know, when you say like, zoom, I get like PTSD because I've been doing so many <laughs> zoom calls. Like, uh, Sorry. Shivers. <laughs> we will uh, take a step back. Ooh, we will, very corporate. We will a 30,000 foot view. Well, that's, <laughs> you comes with the territory, my uh, friend. Synergy. Um, <laughs> okay. We're just going to blue sky this question Ooh. and we're going to say, <laughs> Uh, We're going to say we've had these moments of recognition and and these these movements, some of them older than others, um, and so so and and we know that the protests, uh, you know, can shine light on certain things and they call attention to certain things and they they also can move 
the needle, even in terms of, you know, we saw the needle move on, on we've been seeing the needle move on public opinion around protests and things like that toward in favor of them to say, oh, yeah, this is actually is, you know, a huge issue um, and, uh, you know, something needs to be done about it. So how do how do things then get done about it? <laughs> what do you do? And, the, you know, this question is specific to police reform and, and thinking about barriers and police reform. But how, how do you connect these two? How do you make the, the protests and all the energy and the enthusiasm and the recognition that the system is unfair into something that is more fair? So there's like two tracks to this, right? Like one is a, and I think you probably have to pursue both. I'll, t- I'll start with like a tiny little story. I asked somebody from Canada, he's a police officer, and he did some like pretty interesting. I think they called Mounties up there. Oh yeah, I don't. I don't think he was a Mountie. Yeah, uh, are you Canadian? You you sound and look like a Canadian, so maybe you could get away with this. But uh, no, he he did some he did some really amazing and interesting work on what he did is he would give out uh, positive tickets. So instead of just giving out a ticket, uh, you know, his staff is his is uh, law enforcement folks. Instead of saying, "Hey, Gabe Gabriel, apologize for that. Uh, you uh, you were speeding." And, uh, you know, giving you a ticket for speeding, you know, they would see you driving at the speed limit or helping an elderly senior citizen out or whatever. And they would give you a positive ticket and pay you uh, because of what you did. Oh, okay. That's okay. Uh, yeah. That now it's now it works, right? Because you got paid. Right? And now, now it's, before <laughs> I was sort of like, that just seems inconvenient yeah. and annoying. And yeah, like, before your heart like, rate gets going for no reason. <laughs> yeah. Before you were like, oh, this is, uh, this is, this is like the certificates of I used to receive in fifth grade, you know, like yeah. good effort. No, I mean, look, if they're giving out book it gift certificates, did you have those uh, ever? Did you hear about the scholastic you know ones? About? The scholastic? Yeah, yeah, yeah I got you'd those. Get a, you'd get a pizza. you get a personal pan pizza. Those are good. I remember those. Yeah, see? But I was a fat kid, so I would go through that pan pizza. <laughs> it's not enough. I don't end up getting more, more, but that's the whole point of it. There's you certificates. You would have had to read more books. Yeah. Um, yeah, so he would give out these positive tickets, which now, as you're saying it, I can see why they would be annoying and, and maybe like, freak people out um but the the win you know is like you get this ticket and it's like that's the moment right like uh where you walk you know you get this like check or whatever and you walk away with a positive ticket so i asked him i was like hey can you come on the podcast and talk about this like innovative policy that you uh Mm -hmm. implemented because it's a great solution to some of these i don't want to just focus on the problem these are like so really great solution that is low cost relatively speaking and high impact easy to do yeah. And he he was hesitant, um, and I think um, he's still hesitant. And I don't blame him because his thing is like, look, um, it's if I just plug this policy into the U.S. system, it's not going to really work, okay? Right. Because it's a systemic problem. Um, and I thought about that a little bit, right? So, like, so if the questioner asks, like, what are some of the barriers to police reform? So there's big problems and there's small problems, right? But until we, a lot of the protest movements are focusing, I mean, some of them are focusing on the big problems, but they're kind of focusing, the solutions are like small with like a small S, like no more chokeholds, no more, um, you know, like this is how we're going to police or more money spent on mental health, right? Those are small solutions, but they're not going to really change this, the, the the system. We need systemic solutions. And there's a number of barriers to this, right? Like preeminent among these is the fact that unlike many other countries in this world, the United States has a Second Amendment. 
Okay, like as long as I can own a weapon and the police can own a weapon, it makes it, it, it everything becomes extremely charged, right? So if I'm a police officer and I'm pulling somebody over, um, you know, I'm not even talking about the racial aspects of it, right? Because this happens to African-Americans far more than any mm-hmm. other uh, group of people. But um, even if I, me, I'm, I'm getting pulled over as a person of color or, or if they end up knowing what my name is, my surname is, you know, because I'm Muslim, so I'm obviously a terrorist. So if I'm getting pulled over, um, if, 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 if the police officers think I have a weapon, that's a whole different interaction, right? And I know they have a weapon, that's a whole different interaction. So a deadly right. weapon, right? So, uh, and we've seen that police do fine in so many other parts of the world without weapons. I mean, like police in India, where some of my family's from, like we're beating people with sticks. I mean, yes, a stick can be a pretty uh, terrible weapon, but they were beating people with sticks to get them in line for, for COVID quarantines. Um, you know, but they don't, most police, uh, street police in India don't carry weapons. Same thing with England. Right. Same thing with many other countries. So that's kind of one big barrier to police reform, right? This idea that we are a weaponized country. Um, another one is police unions, which I think we're going to have a podcast episode on hmm. uh, coming up pretty soon. Um like police unions are largely staffed by, I think it's like over 94% white Americans, even though most police forces are now 27% people of color. They're also staffed by extremely old, hmm. older officers. So right. like a large percentage is over 60, 55 or 60. So some of them are retired. Some of them are in service. And whereas the younger officers, irrespective of their background, are more willing to change things, the older officers aren't. Um, you know, and then there's like entrenched interests, right? So for the, from the kind of the weapons manufacturers, they sell a lot of equipment to the police, a lot of military equipment that's been used in our perpetual wars ends up floating down to police and then police become more militarized. You know, you've seen some of this militarized gear on display. Lack of education for police officers is a big issue. Not training, because I do training for police officers all the time. It's not sufficient. But, like, you really need to have law enforcement really... It, it is now, you know, you're giving somebody a deadly weapon and paying them over $100,000 and putting them to, you know, maybe sometimes they're risking their lives. They need to have a more sophisticated understanding of the way the world works. Um, and maybe that's not a four-year education, but it's certainly some more education, you know, beyond high school and a two-month stint at the academy. Yeah. Um, you know, you need to have a year or so of like social science training, civil rights and civil liberties training, sensitivity and cultural training. We don't live in 1970s America anymore. We have like different cultures, different religions. Right. Um, so that's like another, you know, barrier um, to police reform as well. And then the other thing is like just like social media, right? We live in like these fragmented silos where we spend all this time like getting the information that we want and you know, everybody's listening to their kind of, you know, information repeatedly. Um, and it just discourages people from thinking differently, which is why you need protests. I'm going to assume that the listeners of Unfair Nation are represent a diverse audience of multivariate views, perspectives, political affiliations, um, ethnicities. Yeah, so actually, so, so this is a good opportunity. So country of origin, no. So the majority of our listeners, since, uh, you know, if you are listening, uh, we're about 89% U.S., so we're heavily tilted towards mm. the U.S., which makes sense because that's the, the country that I focus on for the most part. 
Um, we are almost evenly split between men and women in terms of our listenership. Uh, and granted, we've only had 11 episodes so far, but um, uh, so men and women. Uh, age range, we are mostly 45 and under, which tracks, I think, the broader podcast audience. And I don't know political views, but I'm willing to bet that it's not just people that are progressive, but, but a little bit broader than that. Well, this was fun, though. I, I appreciate you coming on. I, we had three questions, so uh, three big ones, but you added a few more. Um, for those of you that are listening that would like to send questions, you know, do so over the next week or so. I'll collate them, we'll add them, and then maybe we'll do another one of these um, Q&A sessions if, if we get enough questions coming in. I learned a lot from you. Uh, so this is, this is, this is helpful for me. Oh, stop. I'm <laughs> blushing. Don't, don't coming, do this to me. Coming at this with, with such little information. So, so, um, you know, maybe if I represent like the everyman user, I can, I can, I can I, help with you, that. You're beyond the everyman user. Look at you. You dropped a law, you know, you, you drop, what it's, I see. It's an adage. It's yeah. an adage. You told really? us about data for good. Uh, so, oh, an adage. Yeah. There we go. You it's know, actually corrected. tech for good. Data for good is Sorry, a real organization uh, and they're great. So tech for good. Uh, look, look for them. But yeah, tech for good, techforgoodguy.org. That's where you want to get that book. So yeah, awesome. Thanks for joining Gabe, uh, Gabriel. And uh, this is coming up to work on that. And, uh, <laughs> and do, Leave drop it in. Us, uh, do drop us a Leave note. it in, uh, editor, whoever's editing this, <laughs> your crack team. It's just me. I'm the editor. <laughs> I know. I know. Uh, All right. Well, thank you, Essen. I really appreciate yeah. it as well. And I look forward to talking to you soon. Awesome. Thank you for listening to another episode of Unfair Nation. I'm sure you're bored at home and social distancing, and I have just the thing you can do. Join the now 7,000-strong Unfair Nation. Sign up for our newsletter, check out our huge 11-episode back catalog, and subscribe to the podcast as well for notifications when the latest episode drops. Thanks once again for listening. Stay safe, and we'll get through this. I'm turning on my AC. Yeah, that was good.